Welcome to our discussion segment on J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Let's get started. Back to a regular uh, discussion, Joe. Yes, indeed. I have a question for you. Yes. Have you seen what I've seen? I have. You have not seen <laughs> what I've seen. No, it's no, I've, no, no. It's, no, it's I've seen my share. Yeah, I've seen my share. So <laughs> we'll I don't, save that to the end, yeah, right? We're, yeah, we received some questions from you, our awesome audience, and uh, several of them were about our opinions regarding Rings of Power. So we're going to save that until the end uh, and talk- Do the about, history first, well, right? Yeah, yeah. The talk history first. But I'm, I must admit, I'm equally looking forward to talking about that show. Uh, I am too. I am too, for sure. So John, first question- for you from me, I was curious about your uh, link to Tolkien's past influencing how he saw heroes. Mm-hmm. Because in World War One, I'm going to assume that he saw both sides of it. He saw men who were heroic, and he saw probably some men who were cowardly, probably. Or, or just beyond yeah. scared, shell shocked. It was that how he was able to define the hero so well, or was it also his reading? and his knowledge that he had gained. How did he reach the point of creating the heroes that he created in his stories? I think the the broad outlines of what it meant to be a hero came from the myths that he understood, the old legends. I mean, he read Norse mythology. He read various European mythologies. He read everything he could about the ancient stories that convey, you know, universal moral truths. And then he put events and moments in the stories, whether it's the Silmarillion, the Hobbit, or the Lord of the Rings, that reflect his own experiences. The best example is the Paths of the Dead in, I believe it's the Two Towers, where it's just this open marsh filled with corpses kind of floating just beneath the water. That is a perfect image of a World War I battlefield in Flanders where it's very, very low, usually below the water table. And so these shell holes that have bodies and even just body parts in them will fill with water. So he saw that. He saw men fight. He saw men flee. He saw them run and hide. He saw them run into danger. And you see elements of that in many of the battle scenes, especially in Helm's Deep and on Pelennor Fields in The Two Towers and then in Return of the King. So I think it's a combination of both his understanding of the archetypal heroes from ancient mythology put into this modern myth, but with a sprinkling of his own experiences. How old was he when he was in World War One? He would have been in his, I believe, his early 20s, so a little bit older than kind of the raw recruits and conscripts. So do you think that uh, his knowledge of heroes in his reading, w- was he able to apply that to his experiences first, or did he have the knowledge of what he read before he went there and he was able to, I don't know, assign heroism to the people that he perceived to be heroes? I'll be honest, I don't know. I have read many of his letters, but he didn't really talk too much about his, the actual like day-to-day wartime experience. He did complete his Oxford education in English literature before going into the trenches. So he would have been absorbed in the great books and the great stories. So I think he saw reflections of that once he was actually in France, in the trenches and fighting in the war. But I don't, I don't know if it was kind of the individual moments came first or his understanding of the archetype. I don't, I don't know what the blend was, but I would imagine it was his education first applied to the moments that he saw. Okay. 
In thinking about his time in the Inklings, so if you could define to our audience who they're who the Inklings. Oh, the were. Inklings. Yeah, they were uh, a group of men and with with occasional women joining as well. Most famously, Dorothy Sayers, who met at one of two pubs in Oxford, either the Eagle and Child or one right across the street, and I don't remember what it's called. They would just meet. I think it was twice a month, and they would share their stories. They would have good, honest conversations. Each one with a very purposeful, very focused, not like formal agenda, but just we're here to talk about what we're doing. We're here to talk about our work, our opinions of each other's work and things like that. C.S. Lewis was a member. Tolkien was a member. Cool. Did they, I read that they also had a room at at Magdalen College. Yes, they would eat. They would sometimes meet at Lewis's rooms in Lewis's rooms at Maudlin College. Yeah, fun fact, uh, C.S. Lewis believed that ashes were good for carpets, <laughs> right? He did. <laughs> it's like, so he would smoke in there yes. and then just drop his and ashes then, on yeah, the carpet. Yeah, he would just, he would empty his pipe out into the uh, into the carpet. His housekeeper at the kilns hated, absolutely hated that, because he and his brother Warren, both of them did that constantly. I can't imagine why she, she yeah, wasn't she, a fan. Yeah, she a little, little bit upset about that. <laughs> so, knowing who the Inklings are, what influence did they have on how Tolkien defined a hero? That's a good question. The short answer is I'm not sure. The longer answer is Tolkien was the most kind of stubborn of the Inklings based on everything I've read, certainly compared to Lewis. Lewis really enjoyed getting feedback. He really enjoyed, he made several changes to some of his works based on the feedback that came from the Inklings. Tolkien, from everything that I've read, didn't change much, even if you know, Lewis would point out, hey, maybe this character is a little bit, you know, not 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 particularly well written. This scene has has some problems or things like that, especially when you read The Fellowship of the Ring, which I think is, I mean, all three books in Lord, The Lord of the Rings are masterpieces. But The Fellowship, it kind of, it takes a while to get started. I actually think the movie is an improvement in that way over the wow. book. okay. Because it, I mean, each book is subdivided into two sections, two novels, and the first half of the first section, so... 80, 90 pages before they've even left Bag End. And it's almost, it's not until I think the last chapter that they finally get to Bree and meet with Aragorn and, and kind of start their journey. There's a lot of stuff like Tom Bombadil, uh, Old Man Willow, the Barrow Whites that are not in the movie. And it kind of slows the story down a little bit. I mean, sure. there's interesting stuff that happens there, but I don't know if there, if there was any criticism about that and if he changed or removed any scenes or anything like that. We know he was very self-critical. I mean, he restarted The Lord of the Rings, I believe it was five times, just chucked it all and, and started again. No hard drives where you can recover everything. Sure. Just, yeah. It was just like, this is Which is kind and, of unheard of. Yeah. Like, that's a big decision to say, I'm going to scrap all of mm-hmm. this. Yeah. So it was probably more his own self-criticism that led him to write what became the great literary masterpiece of the 20th century rather than input from others. And that would include his conception of heroes in the story. Because I've read a couple of his early drafts of the Fellowship of the Ring, where like he called, I think uh, Frodo's name was Bingo. And, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But it was it was an interesting Bingo uh, Baggins. Bingo Baggins. Oh, I'm glad he switched it to Frodo. Uh, yeah. Well, Frodo was still included. He was just an ancillary character, oh, so he okay. switched up the names and did not use Bingo obviously yeah. at all in his final drafts. In reading how they changed over time. Obviously, as long-winded as those first few chapters are in that book, he cut a lot of stuff out. Yeah. Uh, a lot of, he improved the uh, dialogue. A lot of things were optimized, I'll say. Mm-hmm. I can't help but think that that writer's group helped him accomplish that. I'm sure. Yeah. In some way, yeah. Was The Lord of the Rings a harder write than The Hobbit? Oh, much so. I think he wrote The Hobbit in about 
from start to finish, I think it was four years, I believe, from In a Hole in the Ground, There Lived a Hobbit, to delivering it to the publisher, and 15 years for Lord of the Rings. Now, granted, Lord of the Rings is much larger, much, much larger, unlike the movie trilogies. (laughs) Absolutely. On the topic of allegory, because I know in The Inklings, obviously, C.S. Lewis loved allegory. He did. If you've ever read Chronicles of Narnia, you can see that that's affirmed there. Mm -hmm. Tell our audience about Tolkien's view of allegory and why he held that opinion. In his own words, he cordially disliked allegory in all its forms. That's from one of his letters. I don't remember which one. I think Tolkien viewed it as lazy writing. Not that the authors were lazy, but it's a lazy way to tell a story in that you're literally just taking the characteristics of one person, a historical figure or someone from another story, and just moving them over, maybe changing one or two things. I think in his mind, that's not... It's writing, but it's not good writing in his mind. Now, there have been obviously great allegories, Narnia and, and, and many others, but he just he did not he did not see that as as a good way to tell a story. So the the heroes that he wrote in his fiction were as you saw them. They weren't a representative of some higher power or some higher character. They were this is the character who is doing this thing that, that they're not an embodiment of some other character in history or God. Well, to an extent. Something. I mean, the best example of this is Frodo, Gandalf, and Aragorn. Three characters, all of whom have Christ-like attributes. So he very intentionally took attributes of people from history, people from his faith, and brought those attributes in, but he didn't give all of them, for example, to one person. So you've got Frodo, who is is suffering. You've got Gandalf, who's who's kind of giving, not necessarily laws, but dispensing wisdom. And you have Aragorn, the returning king. All of those are aspects of Jesus Christ but it's not Frodo is Jesus or Gandalf right. not is like the Jesus. Lion who not is like Jesus. Aslan the Lion who is Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So when it came to lesser characters, when it came to people like uh, King Theoden, for example, who he does write about, who Tolkien writes about in one of the letters was kind of modeled off of a couple of the officers who were above him in his battalion, kind of their mannerisms, their, their modes of speech, and their obviously their heroic qualities. He took elements of two people and put them into one. Nice. Side note, on YouTube, there is a recording of Tolkien reading the rite of the Rohirrim, and it is phenomenal. Somebody and they, had, they set it to the music from the movie. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, uh, it's very good. Hearing that, I just get chills. Yeah. It's amazing. So I have a really easy question. <laughs> Where did Tolkien get his ideas? Easy being sarcastic. Well, yeah. They're so expansive. Oh, they're yeah. so all-encompassing. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I find interesting is I've heard commentators say, yeah, he just had all of these ideas. I don't believe that. I think he started out with the simple ones, and then it blossomed into this wider world that he created. Mm -hmm. Don't know that for sure. It's a theory. So where did he get his ideas? From my understanding, obviously, it starts with a word. The word is hobbit, that he just scratched out on a piece of paper. And I believe it was Tom Shippey, who is a Tolkien scholar, said, thank God for that boring student and his boring essay <laughs> because he and, he, and have, for leaving an extra sheet of paper in there because it gave us one of the greatest, greatest authors of the 20th century. So it started with a word. Tolkien's a philologist. He's a, he's a studier of languages, a lover of languages. From there, he writes the initial story, which is pretty self-contained. The Hobbit is not this big, massive story. It's a simple children's adventure story. It's a good one. And then from there, when it came to writing the sequel, Tolkien reached back into his Book of Lost Tales and all these other stories that he'd been writing in the trenches and soon after, and just kind of like putting them on scraps of paper. 
coming up with names. He's developing his language, Quenya. And a lot of his ideas come from, again, not allegory, but are drawn from other myths. You can obviously see the Norse influence in the Rohirrim. They're basically Vikings on horses. You can see kind of the Roman and the Byzantine influence in the in the people of Gondor and Arnor, this kind of old empire that has a great long legacy but is really starting to decline. English mythology, I mean, the hobbits are English. That's very straightforward. <laughs> sure. The Shire is, I mean, Shire comes from the Shires and counties created by William the Conqueror. But it comes down to Tolkien's philosophy, I think, of fantasy. And if you're interested in this stuff, audience members— I would encourage you to read a lecture that he gave. I believe it was in 1939. It's right on the eve of World War II. He's at St. Andrews University in Scotland, and it's called On Fairy Stories. And the term fairy stories basically is what he means is fantasy. Right. And he writes that good fantasy always is grounded in the primary world, in our world. And then what we do is we, we don't create anything new. If you try to create something new, you are basically trying to do what God does. He's speaking from his Christian worldview. And that doesn't work. We can't really create anything truly new, but what we can do is we can sub-create, a term that he invented, kind of like the idea of the eucatastrophe that I mentioned in the podcast. By sub-creating, we can take, he used the example of a noun and an adjective, you know, green grass. That phrase immediately conjures an image. You can take the word green away and replace it with another color, blue grass. Now you've created something different, purple grass, whatever color you want. You have now sub-created. And you can create a world where the grass is not green, but it is, you know, pick your color. It's still grass. It's still grass. You understand it. Blue sky. You understand what the color blue is. Take away sky, put in something else. That's his philosophy of writing, of developing all these ideas. So when it comes to writing, say, the chapter on the Rohirrim, these horse lords, he basically takes a whole bunch of Viking concepts and just kind of jumbles them up a little bit. That's subcreation. Again, it's not quite allegory. He uses the term subcreation instead. But it, it still gives us, when you read Lord of the Rings, even if you haven't seen the movies, and I, I wish I had read the books before I'd seen the movies because it's, it's forever what I see in the movies, what, what I see sure. in the book. But those who read it before the movies or those who just haven't seen the movies but have read the books, they can create their own image, and it makes perfect sense. Compare that to a lot of modern fantasy stories, it's kind of tough to do that because they're trying to invent whole new concepts. Tolkien always started with, what do we know from this world? Whether we're talking about the elves and the dwarves or we're talking about the monsters like the Balrog and, and Sauron himself, he started with references of the real world to give his audience a very clear picture so they can, in their mind, paint this is exactly so like what we see. mountains and mines. Yeah, Forests exactly. and trees. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I, it's, it seems, again, as I said, so expansive. Like, how could one person come up with all of this? Yeah. And you have to one heck it, of an imagination. Absolutely. And to your point, it starts with a single thought, a single yeah. word. It's not just all of a sudden he has this world like created in his mind. And and I always thought that one of the, I don't want to say like the magic of Tolkien, but one of his talents was layers in a story. Oh, from, yeah. From the language to the culture mm-hmm. that occurred, there was much more, what we were reading was a surface level story of something deeper that the characters touched on throughout that story. Mm-hmm. And so you felt like you were part of something larger than just what was going on by those layers. And I actually think that that's a weakness of the Chronicles of Narnia, because there are layers in Chronicles of Narnia, but it is not nearly as deep Mm -hmm. as Tolkien's work because of that. There are enough layers in Chronicles of Narnia to get you through the story, Mm -hmm. but not to the point where you can become as immersed in it as you can in in Tolkien's work. Yeah. I think that speaks to, in terms of the layers. 
Tolkien was very much writing, again, a, a modern myth, and myths rely on history. If you read Lord of the Rings, it's almost like reading a history book is, because yeah. there are references, just kind of almost throwaway lines about a character like Finrod or something, someone like that, or Erendil. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. It makes you kind of think, okay, you know, there's, there's obviously something to that. Whereas in Narnia, it's much more of the layers are more theological rather than historical. Because you're reading this and you're going, oh, that's a reference to this verse in scripture, or that's a reference to this Christian idea. Right. Nothing wrong with either of them, but you do get much more subtext in a thousand-page novel like The Lord of the Rings than you do in a 200-page book like Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or Prince Caspian, or any of those. Even the histories of Middle-earth are written as a history book. Oh, yeah. So, like, reading through it, Christopher Tolkien, there are stories in there. It is interesting to see the stories and then his notes. And he has footnotes defining, here's the time frames, when this happened, here's who this is, mm -hmm. here's his father, here's his like background. It is for sure written like it's a real thing. Yeah. And also the use of maps, I think that helps. Yeah, absolutely. Maps in, all throughout both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings that, that kind of help you center yourself and, okay, now I understand where we're going yeah. on this journey. The maps are what really helped me understand the Cimmerillion in the first stage. Oh, Yeah versus the third age because i didn't they're talking about all these lands and you see the third age map and there isn't anything there mm -hmm. <laughs> that existed and then you learn why so yeah super helpful okay let's turn now to audience questions special thanks to all of you who sent some in please continue to do so yes in the lord of the rings movie and in the book we saw that Frodo seemed to be suffering from PTSD after his ordeal yes. uh, in taking the ring to Mordor. Is that based on Tolkien's personal experiences? I think it's more based on the people around him. He certainly did have some PTSD, especially after the loss of his three friends at the Somme in 1916. But the letters that I have read, and granted we can't know, just what, all we have are the letters and interviews and stuff with his son, but it seems like Tolkien did not dwell too much on his experience in the war. I don't know to what level he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, but he certainly saw, I mean, millions, about two million Britons served in the, in the army sure. and survived, and most of them probably had PTSD. So he certainly knew people who were suffering from PTSD. And it is a very clear depiction in The Lord of the Rings after, spoiler alert, the ring is destroyed where Frodo is still feeling those lingering effects and will feel them for the rest of his life. I know in the movie, and I believe in the books, somebody says that Frodo, when he's stabbed early in the Fellowship of the Ring, that he will carry that wound for the rest of his life. And that's, I mean, every veteran who's been injured in any war, they know what that is like. Most of the time, those wounds are, are lifelong. Sure. Does Tolkien's definition of heroism change between the elves, the men, and the dwarves? Oh, that's a good question. I'll confess I know less about dwarven culture than I do about the elves and, and men. I can hop in there if you need you me can? to. can? Okay. <laughs> I mean, their objectives would certainly change. I mean, for the elves, it is obviously fighting the long defeat. The vast majority of elves, in fact, all of them in, certainly in the Lord of the Rings, and most of them in the Silmarillion are uncorrupted by evil. They're fighting against evil, whereas the race of men is split. Some fight for forces of good, some fight for the forces of evil. So the objectives are going to be different, but I think the definition, certainly between those two races, would be relatively similar. The idea of sacrificing, of fighting for something greater than yourself, I think those would be pretty similar. Yeah. And the I, dwarves, it's probably about getting more gold and newer jewels, but 
uh, you can speak more to that being <laughs> I in will some do way my, a dwarf. Yeah, yeah, thank you. No, uh, just a huge fan. Actually, not to jump the gun, but I think that they're the best part of Rings of Power, uh, in my opinion. Anyway, back to the question. Polishing a turd. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there is a, I think between all of the races and his stories, there is a common thread of what defines a hero. I think that that is pretty clear. However, I think that the circumstances to be a hero for heroism change between the cultures. So Mm -hmm. the sacrifice of the dwarves, that would be seen as heroic. But if it's with them taking care of their people versus elves, and and there were occasions where there would be that sacrifice made, but it was a higher honor to sacrifice yourself for a, a, a colony or a mine. And the elves, I think, felt the same way, but I think that they did hold a higher standard for a sacrifice as a sacrifice, mm-hmm. and men were kind of all over the place. True. What do you mean by the long defeat? The elves believed that ultimately evil, represented first by Morgoth and then by Sauron, that evil would ultimately dominate everything in Middle-earth. And they were ultimately going to be defeated. But they believed that their task was to hold back the darkness, hold back the forces of evil for as long as possible. That's how Galadriel conceives the long defeat in that conversation to Frodo and the Fellowship. So why did they fight? Why did they continue fighting? Because it's it's the fight that the way Elvish mythology and cosmology works is when they die, if they die in battle, they're immortal, but they can be killed in battle. If they die heroically, they go to one place and can be reincarnated. But if they don't, if they eventually just kind of fade like Arwen does at the end of Return of the King after Aragorn dies of old age, they are not reincarnated. So it's partially selfish, but it's also their firm belief that as the firstborn children of God, of Iluvatar in Middle-earth, It is their responsibility to lead the fight against those who would corrupt this vision of creation that Iluvatar first gave them a picture of when the elves were created. They all saw this perfect world, and then they saw what Morgoth did to it, and they're they're saying, we've got to do our best to try to stop this. Side question from me. Obviously, there's a lot of faith influence there based on Tolkien's faith. How encompassing was that influence for Tolkien, His, his faith and how he saw the world? Well, everything he wrote was influenced, was touched by his staunch Christian faith. Another element of subcreation is that what we do is, in our own way, a reflection of what God did when he created the world. So when he writes, for example, at the very beginning of the Silmarillion, he writes the Ainu Lindala, which is their creation story. He's literally recreating the six days described in Genesis. So from there, straight through to the sacrifices of Frodo, Sam, Aragorn, Gandalf, and everyone else— those are all biblical images, not distinctly universally biblical images, but they not, are reflected— Not allegorically. Right, not allegorically, but not, you, you don't have to be a Christian to understand Lord sure. of the Rings. I firmly believe that to, to really understand Chronicles of Narnia, again, to compare, you have to understand Christianity. You don't have to be a Christian, but you have to understand kind of the, the theology behind Christianity. Anyone can enjoy Lord of the Rings, as long as you can read a thousand-page book. <laughs> so, so the idea of sub-creation comes from his faith. And I think motivated a lot of his creative imagery. All right. Uh, Audience question. Good detour. Who is our favorite between the friends, Tolkien or Lewis? As a person or their writing? Do they give a distinction? Okay. All right. I would be more interested in sitting down and having a beer probably with Lewis. Because Tolkien, as as I hinted at earlier, he's a bit of a bit of a curmudgeon. I think I, I think I would. I, I would, think you would relate to him more. John. Well, probably. <laughs> I would certainly. I would learn more from Tolkien 
Because I, I think Tolkien was probably like intellectually smarter than Lewis. Really? I think so. Okay. I shots fired. As I although as I'm saying that Lewis was certainly much more. Actually, okay, I retract that. I retract that. I'm gonna. I keep, don't know. I don't know. You can. I, you could <sighs> the, the make a case for it for sure. You could. I guess it depends how you define smart. They anyway, butted my, heads for years they before did. they became friends. Yeah. So. My I would I would probably learn more certainly about writing from Tolkien. But I think I would I would enjoy my time with Lewis a lot more. But in terms of the books, I much prefer. Sorry, Lewis fans, I prefer Tolkien uh, when we, it comes to when it comes to their their fiction, nonfiction. I prefer Lewis. I read one of Tolkien's analyses of of literature and grammar, and it, it's, it's rough. It's not it's not very good. It's very very it's very, very dense. Yes, yeah. it is. So I prefer I prefer Lewis's nonfiction, Tolkien's fiction. We are aligned. I'm the same way. Yeah. I enjoy Chronicles of Narnia immensely, mm-hmm. and I usually hear them like once a year or every two years, you know, on a drive. Yeah, because uh, they're just very enjoyable. Oh, they're fantastic. But I get lost in Tolkien, and I love the trails I get lost mm-hmm. on. So I spent some money on the histories of Middle Earth, and wouldn't have done that if I didn't really enjoy yeah. uh, an opportunity to find new paths. I need so. to find those. I need to find them on Amazon and. Get a copy. Yeah, they're great. How much of the Silmarillion have you read? I have read it nine times. Oh, wow. So you've read the whole thing. Yeah. Nine times. Yeah. Wow. So I first, and here's a pro tip, folks. If you want to read that book, hear it on Audible first or hear an audio version of the book first. I will tell you why. And the reason is, is you will quit after the first couple of chapters if you try and read the book. The names of all of these, of the Valar, all of these things are so hard to pronounce. They're impossible. So if you hear it on audio, there's a great version on Audible. You can. It's very inexpensive. You hear that and you hear him pronounce it correctly. It's a great reader. He's got a very deep, centurious voice, kind he, of like Tolkien. I know the one you're talking about. He does. And after you get past the beginning where it's kind of like, eh, this is kind of boring, keep going. Keep going because you're going to, it's so rich and it's so exciting. I'm going to nerd out for a minute. <laughs> the uh, War of Wrath between Morgoth and the Valar, there is a scene where Ancalagon the Black, the largest of all the dragons, is unleashed. And he pushes, he and the other dragons push the Valar back. So they're winning. The Valar like, are the gods. Yeah, yeah, the gods. They're, they've been fighting for 40 years. They're winning. And Morgoth unleashes these dragons. And the biggest one, Ancalagon, is the size of a mountain. He's that big. So they're losing. And then Arendil comes in on his flying ship and battles and Caligon the Black with his bow of light and spears of light. The weapons he has on his ship have been imbued or like blessed, I don't know. But anyway, just that scene in my head of fires everywhere, this gigantic dragon just mowing down Valar, and this flying sailing ship coming in out of the clouds fighting this dragon. I just goosebumps. So that's what you can expect from the stories in the Cimmerillion. There's uh, a lot of uh, love stories in it as well. Oh, yeah. Which are very rich, very deep. Story of Baron and Luthien mirrors the relationship between Tolkien and his wife, Edith. They in first fact, met. it's on their uh, it's a on, tombstones. It's on yeah. their tombstones. And he first fell in love with her when she danced for him in a glade when they were very oh, young. Oh, really? When they were courting. Yeah, he, he writes about that. That wow, imagery is exactly that. what he puts in the story of Baron and Luthien. I know. I Only didn't know to that. be st- stolen in the rings of power. And- so anyway, uh, that yeah, hear it on Audible first, yes. hear it on audio first, and you will thoroughly enjoy it. So I agree, Tolkien is my favorite. Very long answer there. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, that was, that was uh, quite an epic. That was almost Star Wars level for me a couple years ago, <laughs> talking about the, uh, with my nerd rant there. That was, that was good. Uh, By the way, we are going to do another movie episode this season, so stay tuned, everyone. Yes, we are. Is the Tolkien movie relatively accurate and worth a watch? You're talking about the Lord of the Rings? No, the, uh, the film about Tolkien. Oh, the film about Tolkien. I forgot about that. I saw that on a plane, and I confess I was kind of paying attention, kind of not. Nicholas Holt, the guy who plays him, does a great job. I don't know how accurate the early stuff is, because I know less about his life before the war. His experiences, which he doesn't dwell too much on the war, in fact, I think it's only a couple scenes, seems to be pretty accurate. And then the movie's depiction of Tolkien's courtship of Edith and their early life together, and it ends in a, in a very great way, kind of referencing a, a scene that we've already talked about involving him grading some essays. The ending is fantastic. So yeah, it's definitely worth watching. I think it's probably a little bit like Shadowlands, the movie about C.S. Lewis mm. made probably 30 years ago with Anthony Hopkins. Good, but kind of condensing a lot into an hour and a half, two hours. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's good. They were going to do a movie about Lewis and Tolkien, and then the COVID pandemic put the kibosh on that, which is unfortunate, because mm. I would have loved to see the Inklings sitting at the bar at the Eagle and Child. I think that would have been kind of cool. My favorite pub in Oxford when I was there, by the way. Shout out. All right, so here's come, here comes the question that we got from several people. What are your thoughts on Amazon's series, The Rings of Power? So before we launch into <laughs> yes. this— And we're going to keep it short, folks. Yeah, this is yeah, a history podcast, not a, yeah. not a movie review or TV review show. But. What I, I just want to provide some context. What was Amazon able to use, and what were they not allowed to use? From what I understand, they have full rights to the appendices of The Lord of the Rings. Okay. They have— shared rights of the Lord of the Rings, the text, with Warner Brothers. So they can use some stuff from Lord of the Rings, but they can't use other stuff. For example, they cannot use the word hobbits. If they use, from what I understand from reading some reports, if in the Rings of Power they utter the word hobbit, Warner Brothers would sue them. Okay. They do not have rights to the Silmarillion, despite this being set during a key the time covered in the Silmarillion. They do not have rights to that. That's why a lot of the lore in the Silmarillion that they kind of expect you to know and then they ignore it is it's kind of implied. That's why they don't use certain words. That's why they don't they can't they can't show certain things that Tolkien geeks like you and I know from the Silmarillion. They can't show it in the show because it's not referenced in the appendices of Lord of the Rings. So like as an example, when in the first episode, when the trees of light are being drained, they can't show Engaliant. Correct. Engaliant is a giant spider. I was so looking, I was praying that we would see that. So anyone who's seen the films or enjoyed the books has read about Shelob. Shelob is a descendant of Engaliant. Engaliant actually almost killed Morgoth until he was freed by his Balrogs. Takes nerd hat off. (laughs) Yes. It's going to uh, come back it, on. It'll come back, yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay, so with that context, yeah. John, what are your thoughts on the Amazon Rings of Power? So, all right, I'll be honest. I am not a fan in any way. I have heard people, including friends of mine, including someone who is a frequent guest on this podcast, say that it, visually it looks great. It does. I agree with that. I See, I disagree. You, I do. Here's no, what no, I'm going to no, do. No, 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 I'm going to no, be no, quiet. No, no, no. I'm going to be quiet. You you tell me your your opinion. I I think okay, it looks great in the same way that a photo, a static photo of a landscape looks great as a desktop background on your computer. The static scenes where there's very little motion 
Okay, yeah, beautiful landscapes. New Zealand is a beautiful country, and they hired some really good uh, animators to create Armenalos, the capital city of Numenor. Fine. But I assess this coming from the position of being a self-professed Tolkien geek. I'm fine with changing things. The Lord of the Rings movies change things. The Hobbit movies changed a lot of things. I'm fine with adding things. But there is something about the current trend in Hollywood, Hollywood, I'll say, just just movie making generally, where just because you bought something, an intellectual property, a franchise or something like that, that means in the minds of the creators, you have earned the right to do whatever you want with it. And that really bothers me, whether we're talking about Star Wars or Star Trek, whether we're talking about the Marvel studio, we're talking about whatever it is. So you mean something that has source material and continuity? Well, that, but also has a dedicated fan base. I understand that good storytelling occasionally subverts expectations and kind of shocks the audience. I was not looking for a page-by-page adaptation of the source material or something like that. But when you take Galadriel, one of the most powerful most regal, most incredible characters, not just in Tolkien, but in the history of the Western canon. And you turn her into this vengeful, spiteful... Psychotic. Borderline psychotic in one scene, and just this angry young woman, it breaks my immersion. When I watch Lord of the Rings, I watch it every year at Christmas. I take a whole day, and I start at 7 a.m., and I watch all three movies. And I am immersed from, Galadriel's the first one to speak. When she starts speaking in Elvish and then does the translation, the world is changed. I feel it in the earth. Boom, I'm in. Every time Galadriel is on the scene, I'm like, no, that's not her. Now, that's me as a Tolkien geek. Let's talk about objective writing. It's badly written. They ignore stuff from earlier episodes. They seem to forget things. The scenery is okay. It looks pretty but it is used in a way that makes no sense. In one episode, there is a massive natural disaster. I'm going to try to refrain from spoilers. And it seems like everyone is dead. Nope, it turns out that they're fine. Events make no sense, just from, not within the context of the story, but just they make no logical sense. So it is a symptom, I think. It is a great, not symptom, it is a great example of modern writing, which is I'm going to take something that is beloved by millions and I am going to twist it for my own ideological reasons, into something different. I'm not talking about casting. I have no problems with any of the casting. Some racist dirtbags are like, there are no black elves. Yes, there are. Just, just that's, yeah. that's ridiculous. But I'm talking about the characters. The characters, I believe, if you're going to adapt something, the characters should at least either be similar to what it is, or you should explain why they're different. They killed off Galadriel's husband for no reason other than one of the author's I'm sorry, one of the showrunners said, because if she was married, this this guy said, direct quote, she would not have the same agency within that universe. And I'm going, wow. okay, that's a political statement. I'm tired of politics messing up my movies. Yeah, Yeah. and politics in general. So I, it's unfortunate because when I first heard they were doing that, when I saw that first publicity photo that you texted me that showed the two trees, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be the greatest thing I've ever seen. And it's not, it's not good. So those are, those are my general impressions. I mean, I, I, could, I could do an hour on each of the episodes and everything that I think is wrong with them, yeah. but uh, I won't. New poll. Yeah. Would you like John and I to do <laughs> an hour? Well, hey, I mean, if we maybe as a, as a bonus episode, maybe over Christmas or something like that, I'd be happy to sit yeah. down and not as a history podcast, we'll put a giant label on it, Nerd Rant. <laughs> yeah, nerd Rant. <laughs> so yeah, send us, your, uh, send us your thoughts if you would like to hear more of these uh, Nerd Rants. So those are my thoughts. How about you? 
I have several thoughts. So I do enjoy how it looks. That is one thing that I count as a plus. I walked into it trying to very, I don't want to say hopeful. I, I didn't have expectations. Yeah. I wanted to see what would actually play out. So a couple of things stand out. To your point about badly written, I agree. There's a lot of things that are strange. So this is going to sound like a nitpick thing. It's not. It bothers me when, to jump ahead to my third point, when <laughs> someone's dislike of something causes the person who made it to demonize that person entirely. Mm. It's not a disagreement. It's not like I created this thing and this person says, well, I don't really like that. It's like, you are Satan. You are this evil wow. thing. You, you are, have you are patently evil. You are patently something evil, which is said. something that the show writers have said that this is evil. What they're saying is evil. Meaning, it's not, meaning the criticism, the, of the criticisms show. Yeah. of the show. It's not evil. It's not. It's love. The, we love yeah, the source material. The reason why Star Wars, before the last three films, were such a cultural icon, is because of the fans. Because the fans said, "Okay, we have this storyline that has continuity." Yeah, and we know that there's all these other stories. It has problems, but it has problems, but we're willing to look past those because the story has remained consistent. It's all following this specific pathway forward. And then the three films come out, whole other thing that just threw all of that away and regurgitated old stories. So it's not an evil thing, it's a logical observation of what is happening in front of our eyes. So you have people who love. Lord of the Rings, and I'm a geek too, obviously, as I've proven on this podcast <laughs> several times. So I see that. I'm just like, no, no, no. We can disagree with how you wrote this character and still be relatively good person. Yes. I just, to your point, Galadriel is not psychotic. I know she's technically younger in Elvis years, but it seems like, and, and she's starting to mellow out a little bit, but it seems like it just it wasn't her and it didn't seem like her. And there's something, and here's my second You just point. don't like strong women, Joe. So that is a good tie-in because it seems like there's an epidemic with writers in Hollywood being unable to write female heroes, heroines. Really? Because every movie, it seems, has one now. But they don't write them like people you can relate to. My go-to is Ellen Ripley. Ellen Ripley from Alien and Aliens. Stop there. Don't watch any of the other ones. Alien and Aliens. You have a woman who is confident, strong. She is a leader. She doesn't want to be. She doesn't want to be. She's just trying to do her job. You know what? I'm not on a spaceship and I'm not being attacked by a giant alien, but I can relate to that. Mm -hmm. My mom served in the United States Navy as a pilot when it was not allowed for females to fly in combat. She did it well before part of the a first test program, right? Yeah, yeah. It was part of a test program in the 60s before the first recorded carrier landing by a female in 79. She was part of a group that was doing it back then. I see a lot of Ellen Ripley in my mom. Mm. She is quiet until she does until she's required not to be. She is a leader. There are certain things that she doesn't want to do, but she does them anyway. What you see in Ellen Ripley and how the character transforms from alien to aliens is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. It is the most amazing, inspiring thing. I mean, you stand up and clap when she gets in the power loader and battles this, this queen alien to save her adopted daughter. It just, you just feel your heart glow. Oh, yeah. So, I mean... That, to me, is always the standard. You, you see someone who is, she is all those things. Kind of like Sarah Connor. In yeah, the first yeah, Sarah Connor is a great example, yeah. too. Again, so, stop there. At, right, watch Terminator 1, Terminator 2, yeah, stop, stop there. there. Yeah. Nowadays, it is this 
forced thing. And if you criticize any of it, you're saying, well, you don't believe in this. You don't believe in that. No, no, no. I'm just observing. I'm trying to relate to the character. If I can relate to the character I'm going to, I'm going to like the character. It's just, it's a normal human reaction. So I just, it's one of those things that's very strange to me and I I don't get it. That's been a stumbling block for sure. Um, So very long answer there. But um, overall, Rings of Power, I think they've been hindered from the start because they haven't been able to use any of the source stuff. Very true. And I've been trying to give them a fair shake because of that. You, How are you going to write the second age without the Silmarillion? Their first attempt was to try and rewrite the third age. Now, they were denied that, which we're all thankful for. Yes. But what do you do if you can't incorporate it? So that's where I'm at. I mean, in terms of the writing, like the, not to... I don't want to spoil anything, but something happens to cause a seismic event. Okay. Yeah. That natural disaster. The the natural disaster. So the thing that causes it, why is it just water? Why, why wouldn't they inscribe? Okay. This is going to sound stupid, but, but why, why wouldn't they put like in the trench, like magic runes that are evil that, that like (laughs) paint the water, well, that imbue the water with something bad. Yeah. It's full of magic. So insert some magic into the water, something like that. It was just water. Mm. Yeah. You know, so it's just that kind of stuff. I'm kind of like, well, all right, I guess that works. I, I don't know. So I, I, I've been trying to give them a fair shake. It's not my favorite. You're probably more more yeah. objective than but I am. Certainly agree on the writing. Certainly agree on the lack of character development. And uh, really, I mean, Galadriel, I hope, takes a positive turn. I think. She's, I hope so. They're I working think she on season to. two now. Yeah, and I think in this last episode, she started to mellow out and be a little bit more full of wisdom rather than rage and hate. I guess. I guess, but that was also the episode where she mocked her dead husband for having his armor not fit, and that that was yeah. that was a bit much. But hey, you know, a few hours after we uh, finish this recording, the final episode will yeah, air, well, and who knows? Maybe later this season we'll uh, we'll share our thoughts on how the end, how the season ended. Do you have an idea of because we're supposed to see the big bad guy somewhere? Don't spoil it, but do you think you know who he, who the big oh, bad yeah. guy is? Yeah, yeah, totally. okay, yeah. okay. All right, well, we'll, we'll also, reveal that. Uh, also, real <laughs> whether quick, whether or not no, we were right, because yeah. I think you and I have the same idea. Yeah, the scenes of Casa Doom are amazing. Yeah, I think they're amazing visually. That first one, yes, but we haven't seen much since the first episode, which is unfortunate. It's the unfortunate. first one set That's the stage. Yeah, yeah, the first one. I was just like, that is what I hoped it would be, and that. Actually, one final point, and then we'll move on, because I'm sure some of you are like, okay, get back to the history. But <laughs> my favorite character in those first two episodes was Disa, the dwarven princess. She was awesome. But at the same time, because you immediately you understood her perspective and her objectives yeah, and awesome things like character. that. However, and this goes to the writing, the lines that she and that all the other characters are speaking, they don't sound Tolkien-esque. And again, this is because they don't have access to the Silmarillion. They don't have lines that they can lift from the book and put into the movie. When she's, the first scene that you see her in, she's bickering with her husband. And it kind of, again, it broke my immersion because I'm going, wait a minute, is this a, a an epic high fantasy story? Or is this a sitcom from the late 90s where you've got the lounging around husband and the hardworking wife who's trying to keep the house running? And so that was, that was even though I, 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 I like Disa and she's had an interesting character arc this season, it goes back to, you can have the best actors and actresses in the world, but man, you've got to have good, solid writing with yeah. people who have experienced things. I think one of the things that, that sets Tolkien apart from so many modern fantasy writers is he experienced a lot of horrible stuff sure. early in his life. 
I think most modern writers, you know, pandemic aside, they spend most of their time in the Southern California Hollywood bubble surrounded by other people of similar socioeconomic status. They haven't experienced real life, so they can't write what they know. So they try to recreate what they've heard about and seen on TikTok and Twitter and everything else. Tolkien, Lewis, many of the great writers saw heroes, saw villains. They understood the real nature of good and evil. Not the good and evil we see on Twitter where oh, you tr you've triggered sure, me sure. and I'm going to cancel you. They've seen real evil and they've stood against it. That's what allows them to write great, great stories like The Lord of the Rings. Rant over. All right, folks, hopefully you enjoyed the, uh, uh, the review there. Sorry to those of you who are like, wow, we, we don't care. We try to, we try to <laughs> appeal to all audiences here. Well, one, of the, one of the things about talking about heroes in fiction is you have to talk about the fiction. That's true. Both you do. how it's written and how it's how it's defined on film. Yeah. So, so Joe, we've got something special for our audience next week. Tell us a little bit about that. We sure do. We will be conducting an interview with author James Richardson. He is the author of the book, An Abolitionist Journal. John and I are reading through the book right now. We cannot wait to ask him all of our questions. This fits perfectly into our theme of the season, and we're excited to have, have that interview with him. That's right. So stay tuned. That will go live next week. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. And if you would like to make this podcast even better, go to 15minutehistorypodcast.org and hit the subscribe and support button. Thank you. And see you all next week.